Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. My guest this week is Meredith Jaffe. Meredith is a presenter and facilitator as well as the author of two stunning novels, The Fence and The Making of Christina, published by Pan Macmillan. Welcome, Meredith. Hi, Claudine. How are you? Very well, thank you. Now, Meredith, I met you at a gorgeous lunch event late last year at which you talked about your latest novel, The Making of Christina. And having read The Fence not long before that, I could not have imagined a more different direction for your second novel. It wasn't what I, I was expecting. Now, was that a deliberate decision on your part or more of a case of the next story that you needed to tell? Actually, it's the other way around. So when I signed my contract with Pan Macmillan, it was a two-book deal, and that con- that contract was based on the making of Christina. Um, as part of the submissions process, my agent asked me to write a synopsis of the fence, which I did, and then when Pan Macmillan came back to me, they said, look, we love Christina, it's fabulous, but as a first book, it might be a bit heavy for some people, mm. um, and we rather like this idea of the fence, would you mind writing that one first? So I... Of course, I said yes, because as you well know, as an unpublished author, (laughs) you'll say whatever it takes to get yourself published, basically. And so I then had to turn around and write the other book really quickly. And I wrote it. I wrote The Fence in the June of 2015 um, so that I could submit it for the uh, I think I had to submit it by the November. So, yeah, it was all a bit full on. So the, it looks like I'm um, – it also makes me look like I'm highly productive because I had a book out one year, <laughs> year two years in a row. So, uh, it, so, yes, it is. The subject matters are worlds apart in one sense. I think the difference is that um, the fence allowed me to be funny and to have humour and to to – shine a light on some of our ridiculous behaviour when we get ourselves in a pickle, whereas I felt that with Christina there was very little scope for humour. And as a writer, I have to say my natural tendency is towards humour. Writing those darker books takes a lot more out of you in one sense because you're inhabiting the skin of someone whose life is a misery Um, and, and is struggling to find a way out of that. Um, but it also lets you explore greater empathy, I think, to write about a difficult and dark subject. So, yeah, that very different writing experiences. One, and also I might say, as many first-time novelists um, will, uh, will actually understand, is that Christina was like 10 years of my life, mm. you know, and whereas The Fence was probably 18 months of my life. Um, so they're very, they, the books come from very different places and times in my life too. For the benefit of people who haven't read it, can you tell us a little bit about this book? Christina is the story of a woman called Christina who falls madly in love with a married man um, who's incredibly wealthy and eventually after many years of being his mistress, he declares that he is leaving his family, that he wants to be together um, whisks her off and, and she has a two-year-old daughter when they first meet so they whisk he whisks them off to a effectively the castle in the sky off to this beautiful country property and uh to this idyllic life and the wheels fall off the day that she gets a phone call from her daughter's school 
um, to say that that the daughter feel thinks that she is pregnant, and as the as they investigate that further, she discovers that the perpetrator is not one of the boys from school, but in fact her long term partner. Um, now I'm I'm not giving anything away. There's no spoilers in that mm-hmm. because, as you well know, it's right there in chapter one. Yeah. What interested me about the story was this age old question about how do you how do you live with yourself, having known that under your roof, in your home, in the place that is supposed to be a sanctuary, that this terrible crime has been committed over a period of six years in this particular case. Mm. And how do you ever resolve that guilt? How do you uh, retain or, or, or rebuild the relationship with your child? And and that, and also with yourself, like the, that, that sense of trusting your instincts must go straight out the window. Um, so I really wanted to explore the aftermath of that kind of crime rather than the crime itself. Yes, and I I think at the time when I met you, I had said to you that um, as a mother, um, I found that subject matter to be quite a, a confronting one. Um, mm. And you've dealt with some very you know serious and potentially traumatic themes in this book. And so I wondered, um, as a writer, how did you get yourself into this headspace and how did you cope emotionally with writing about this subject matter? Uh, The things I actually found, it's very confronting doing the research. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I have been to court as a witness in a crime, but I have not been... Um, you know, the victim of that particular crime. That was that was nothing to do with this subject matter. But read, obviously, as we would all know, that, that you cannot read transcripts of child sexual assault cases uh, for obvious reasons. They are the children are protected, their identity is protected, and those transcripts are not available to the general public. But what you can read is judicial reform reports. Uh, people who work in the field, so police, psychologists, social workers, uh, all sorts of people who surround this whole very difficult issue of how you run court cases for child sexual assault when the victim is often very, very young and obviously very vulnerable and the court system is not designed for children. Um, and that that was also very traumatic, though, to read some of the examples that they use in all these reform papers about what is going on in courts and not just the actual crime that is being tried but also the injustice of a judicial system which is filled with people who also have personal opinions about uh, about you know consent or about uh, contributing to circumstances of the crime so I, th- I found that really heavy to deal with and to really think about and then trying to find a way to express that in the narrative. So I really picked out of all of that the rock bottom centre, or rock bottom, that's not quite the right phrase, but the absolute median of the age of the child, the type of crime, the longevity of the crime, and the kind of uh, psychological tactics that were used by the perpetrators to retain silence Mm -hmm. and and compliance in these crimes. So in a way it made it easier because I knew I wasn't – if this makes sense, I wasn't making it up. No one would ever be. I was really concerned that people didn't would not would read it and know it to be a truth and not some high flute and fancy idea that could not be substantiated. I felt because of the delicacy of the subject matter and uh, that it was really important to try and be as close to the truth as possible on this subject. 
of course, none of us really do know unless we are the victim or the mother of the victim in this case, exactly what is going on inside people's heads. Um, it's interesting post-publication how many people have come forward and talked to me about these issues and professionals as well as victims and parents of victims and how close to the truth I managed to get it, which I guess fills me fills me more with a sense of relief rather than, than anything else that I have been emotionally truthful in the storytelling. What inspired it? It was inspired by, do you know, this is a very odd analogy, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, when you go, I'm going to go and buy a new car and it's going to be this kind of car and it's going to be this color and blah, blah, blah. And no one else has got one. I haven't seen them anywhere else. And suddenly you see them everywhere. Yeah. And it's a bit, a little bit like that. So I read a very small new newspaper article about a particular set of circumstances that was in the courts, um, and then I started seeing it everywhere. And what intrigued me about these stories that were being reported, and you have to remember when I started this book, there was no Royal Commission into anything to do with child sexual abuse. Um, this is well before that. This is well before some of the prominent private schools, etc., were in the papers for these crimes going on. So... Um, I started to read snippets of stuff where very wealthy uh, and powerful men were being unveiled as being perpetrators against children or particular child, usually often in the family environment, not necessarily a stepchild, but certainly, um, you know, it may have been a close family friend's child, etc. And it just, you know, it was a bit of a zeitgeist thing. And I just started thinking, how would you feel as a mother? that this had been going on under your nose for X years and you didn't see a thing? Or did you? And did you just block it off? Or, you know, all those kind of questions. And that was really the, the genesis of it, was me trying to unravel, assuming that you really didn't see anything, how could that have happened? And then does that make it worse when you do find out the truth? And how, how do you possibly ever live with the guilt? Um, because despite the fact that you're not, not the perpetrator, in a way you've aided and abetted the perpetrator and also in a way you are also a victim. And I soon, I soon came to realise through all the research that in a way you have to groom the mother in, able to, in, in order to access the child. And I think a lot of the stuff that we've seen come out of the Royal Commission has proven that to be true even when the person is external to the family. It is someone they trust. That the parents have put that child in the trusting care of their priest, teacher, scoutmaster, whatever the case may be, and that trust has been abused, and that often those abusers have been um, have fostered that trust um, to in in order to gain access to the to their victims. So I think, yeah, I guess that was where I was just intrigued about how how that I would unravel that and how would I live with myself. And going back to your earlier question about how did I live in that headspace for 10 years, with a great deal of difficulty and often sometimes anger and sadness and frustration, um, it was a very difficult place to be. And particularly since I did create Christina, to not be the milk of human kindness, shall we say. She, yeah. isn't, she isn't a fabulous, warm, adorable mother who you know, who was, she, she is flawed and she is selfish in some ways and vain in other ways. But I kind of felt in a way that I, 
A, it allowed the reader to distance themselves a little bit from her and, and to be able to judge her. Um, but equally also to say it, it's not about whether you're a good person or a bad person or a great mother or a terrible mother. It doesn't excuse the crime. The central story is told in flashback um, whilst moving forward in the present. Um, and it's in that time when Christina is waiting for her daughter, Bianca, to return from overseas that she contemplates these past events. But as you said earlier, it's right from the first chapter that we know something terrible has happened. So I wanted to ask you, was that dual timeline difficult to manage whilst turning up the tension at the same time? Actually, I have to say no. But I, but in order to, to explain that answer, when I first wrote the novel, and if you've read the acknowledgements, I quite openly say that I threw the whole thing out and started yes. again. But when I when I first wrote it, being a new writer who'd never written a novel in her life, um, I wrote it chronologically. Um, it covers uh, it covers seventeen years, mm-hmm. so it's a long time frame to manage as a writer and to and to maintain tension, etc. As you said, and then I read um, a book called. Uh, Sisterland, um, and I'm having one of those mental blanks going, oh, I've forgotten the name of the author, um, amazing American author anyway, and I read Sisterland, and she had a similar timeline structure that I currently have, and I went, oh, light bulb moment, of course, that's how to manage it, and so then it actually became very easy to rewrite. Um, once I threw out, obviously, this day and age, we don't literally throw out the manuscript. Once we we, we file it away and open a new blank document, um, it once I had that idea that I could actually have this Christmas, you know, the, for, the lead up to Christmas happening uh, at the forefront of the story and then have the, the, the history of the story in the alternate chapters, it actually made it so much easier. It solved so many problems for me um, that I was struggling with structurally because having having you know, written the novel in the first place over a period of years and knowing in my heart of hearts that it was not right but I didn't know what was wrong or how to fix it. You know, having spent years and years writing it, I actually did the rewrite in four months um, because I suddenly had, you know, the structure there. And then in a way that had la- enabled me later on when I was doing The Fence all of a sudden urgently because they wanted to publish it first, I knew that if you can just nail the structure, mm-hmm. then it does make life so much easier. I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a plotter in the true sense, but I'm also realised that being a pantser is a very long and involved way of writing a novel. Mm-hmm. And I kind of I like to sit in the middle. I like to have an outline and I like to know where I'm going and where it's ending, but I don't like to prescribe what's going to happen. I like to give the characters some free reign as I'm writing. So I've now become a firm plotter pantser. <laughs> <laughs> Because I don't recommend taking 10 years to write a novel from a marketing publicity point of view. It's really not a great strategy. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Um, another important feature of the book is this rundown property that Christina commits herself to restoring. Um, mm. Can you tell me about that? Was this based on a real place? It was based on a real place. Um, I visited this house um, with a friend. We were buying horses at the time, strangely enough, and these people had this property in the Blue Mountains and, oh, my God, you should have seen it. We literally did drive up this driveway with – it must have been a two-acre – two acres of Dutch irises on one side and this daffodils on the other and it was like, oh, my God. And it was just the most – they were restoring this house and they they let us have a look through it and it was just – mind-blowingly beautiful I was so jealous I have to be honest (laughs) and um and that was the foundation for the property that they moved to 
Fantastic. Mm. Gardening is an activity that features quite largely in um, the making of Christina, but also in the fence. Mm. Um, so does this stem from your own interest or does this stem from, you know, what you saw at this property in the Blue Mountains? I have a uh, stepmother who is an amazing gardener. I'm so insanely jealous of what a great gardener she is. And I would give my eye teeth to be a fabulous gardener. So it's really just wish fulfillment is the honest truth. Um, we, we live on a property now, as you know, and I have a two acre garden and I'm allowed to weed it and I'm allowed to prune the roses. And that is the sum total of my involvement <laughs> because my husband will kill me if I did anything else. But God, I'd love to be a great gardener. And, I, and I, I've been addicted to gardening Australia since you know, it started. And I love all those country style magazines and all that whatnot. And yeah, nah, I can bake. I will give you that one. I can, Gwen's recipes in the fence are recipes. I could tell you how to make them. But um, when it comes to that style of creativity, it's unfortunately um, not something I do. And you know what? To be a really good gardener, you so have to be passionate and have the time to do it. You know, these gardens do not create themselves. And seriously, I've got children, I've got horses, I've got a farm, I've got work, I've got stories, I've got all so many hats on. Yeah. Well, I guess that brings me nicely to my next question. And you've, you've spoken about living um, on your property. So I wanted to know was um, whether living on the South Coast uh, on your property has influenced or helped you as a writer, do you think? On so many, so many levels, the answer is yes. I think the number one thing that was noticeable from the very first week we were, we were here is that living on acreage, and we have a reasonably significant acreage, but we also our neighbours on either side. So one neighbour has got 500 acres, another neighbour's 180, another neighbour's 160, that kind of thing. So mm. we feel like we're, you know, really living on a 1,000 acres. Mm. as a, So the physical sense of space is very liberating and in a way very meditative. So that is totally good for your crea creativity. The other thing I would say, though, and you're familiar with the area, is that uh, – very, it's a small community, so a lot of. You know, I've just been up into town this morning to to do one thing, and I came home two hours later because you're running to someone, you have a cup of coffee, then someone else sees you and they pop in. So the, the, the it's a very close knit community on so many levels. So that's also been fantastic from the support for my writing, but also for some of the other things that I do as well. I I work with a local publishing house as a freelance editor. Um, I. I've been involved with the Friends of Milton Library. I'm blessed to have been um, appointed the festival director for Storyfest. There's a whole lot of things that are going on for me down here that would not have happened in Sydney. Sure. Now, I understand further to what you've just told me that you've got a new book series coming out in 2019 called The Horse Warrior. Can you tell me a little bit about this series of books? Mm. So Horse Warrior is – so I should go back a step and say that I, have all, I interviewed uh, Alexander McCall-Smith uh, a couple of years ago for Sydney Writers Festival and I've always been in awe of him with his you know um, number one ladies detective agency mm. series and all the in Scotland Street and all the things that he does and he's so damn prolific mm. um and I was when I was interviewing him I was thinking about in the back of my mind I was thinking about going you know what I really admire you and I you know but I just don't think I could live with the same characters year in year out and produce book after book after book 
the whole series thing, oh, I don't know, it's just so not me. And on the other side of the fences, I love my children, of course, but I don't know, being a children's right, I don't know if I, you know, I just don't know if I'm that kind of person. And then we've been vowing and declaring since we moved here that there's a a very difficult bush walk near us called Pigeon House Mountain. And um, we've been waiting until winter to do this walk. So anyway, long and short of it is we're doing this walk. I've got the knapsack on full of all the food and the drink and the whatnot for the kids because, you know, it's like with kids, you can't possibly just go there, you know, with a bottle of water. And my husband and my son have galloped up the hill, you know, miles ahead, leaving me with the pack and and the and Miss Ten or Eleven she was at the time. And I turned to her and I said, "You know what we need? What we really need is a good mountain horse." And she laughed and said, "Because this it's really steep, you know." And uh, I've been lucky enough. I've done the I've done you know riding through the snowy mountains and all that, you know, man from snowy river stuff. And and then out of that, this little idea started in my head and it wouldn't leave me alone which is as you know if you're a writer if the idea won't leave you alone you probably need to write it and so I just wrote a couple of hundred words and I happened to be talking about it with our local publisher and I said and he said oh horse books oh my goodness they you know kids go nuts for horse books I said yeah but you know it's not one of those you know bickering behind the stables pony clubby type things it's kind of more I don't know silver brumby meets narnia meets uh the hobbit Sounds awesome. <laughs> and he just laughed and he said, we well, said, can you write it? Can you write it? And can I have it? And I said, well, look, you can have it on one condition. And he said, what's that? I said, there's a girl who lives locally. She was 13 at the time who draws the most amazing horses I've ever seen. I'm so insanely jealous of people who can draw as well as those who can garden. <laughs> and um, and I said, I'd, she, she, I'd like her to do the, the, the artwork for it. And he went, oh. So I showed him her Instagram account. He went, oh, my goodness, she really can draw. So long and short of it is that that's how it got published as an indie publishing thing rather than through a big house. And uh, it's as the idea developed, and he was quite instrumental in fleshing out the fantasy elements of it because that's a genre he's really fond of. Um, Yeah, the project just kind of went on from there. And suddenly, I don't know, I'd signed a contract for a – you know, indefinite number of horse warrior books. Um, and the cover art, I've got to tell you, is just beautiful. I'm so overjoyed to be working with this talented young artist. It's just lovely. And and the house team at the publishing house, the guy who does the production on book covers is amazing as well. And, you know, really been wonderful to work in a creative project rather than just here's the book, you know, let me know when it's finished kind of thing. It's been very collaborative, which is really not something you necessarily get to enjoy with a big publishing house. So that's been really nice to do. Um, so, yeah, so there's your there's your plot, Pracy. It's um, <laughs> Silver Brumpy meets Narnia meets the horse. For, I mean, I meets the, there's your meets elevator the pitch right there. Yeah, it is. It is. I, that is my standard elevator pitch. And so people kind of go, oh, so it's definitely going to appeal to horsey lovers, um, horse lovers. The horses are very important in the book. Um, and it's definitely going to appeal to people who like a bit of fantasy. Uh, there are no dragons and that what, you know, it's not a Harry Potter-esque thing at all. Um, but it does follow the fate of an 11-year-old girl who's pretty feisty and pretty opinionated. And she, of course, she's an amazing horse rider. Um, and we're going to join her and her friend on a very interesting life journey over the next few years. So there you go. So never say never, really, Claudine. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Because I've sure... also 
I'm also still writing adult fiction. It's not like I'm just doing this and I've just thrown my lot into children's fiction. I'm also structurally edi- editing my next adult novel. So of course like, you are. Oh. <laughs> Busy lady. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that's eagerly anticipating these books. So when can we expect to see book one on the shelves? Book one is slated for the end of March next year. Um, and... I look, I'm very excited about the project, as you can tell. So, yeah, book one is then I need to sit down. Once I finish the structural edit of my adult novel that I'm working on at the moment, then I need to sit down and write Horse Warrior 2 and 3 um, so that there's a Horse Warrior 2 out, you know, within 12 months of Horse Warrior 1 being out. So that's kind of how it works. As Jen Stora, who's a children's author, she writes the Truly Tan series, mm-hmm. amongst other things. As she said in one of her podcasts on, um, well, she does YouTube one, so what do you call that, vodcasting, um, on writing series for children. And she said, basically, that's your life for whatever period of time you've committed to. So I went, oh, well, that's, that's great, but I also need to keep writing adult fiction. So it's going to be a busy time, I, I guess. <laughs> Indeed, sounds like it. Um, now, you mentioned StoryFest a little bit earlier, and that's something that I wanted to, to delve into with you just for a little bit. So you're the festival director for this new creative venture called StoryFest. Can you tell me what this is all about? StoryFest is very simply a festival celebrating, celebrating storytelling. Um, we deliberately steered clear of calling it a literary festival or a readers and writers festival. Um, as we know, there are a lot of those around. Um And we liked to embrace the whole idea of storytelling in whichever format that may come. So we have, uh, that could be be film, it could be plays, it could be poetry, fiction, non-fiction, etc. So we've tried to keep it fairly broad and the festival will be about celebrating great storytellers in whatever forum they happen to be working in. So that's actually, in a way, really liberating as a festival director. So I'm working with author Pamela Cook, and she's the program director working alongside me in terms of you know who we're going to be inviting to the festival. There's an amazing team behind it of incredibly talented people. Um, and it's quite liberating going and meeting with publishers and going, we, we need them to be great storytellers. They need to be articulate. They need to be engaged and passionate not necessarily that they're an award-winning writer or, you know, that best, that big name. I mean, and let's face it, if people want that kind of stuff, they've got plenty of platforms to do that through, you know, Sydney Writers Festival or wherever they happen to be. Um, And we wanted to say we're a small regional festival and we want to actually embrace what's interesting to us. So, yeah, so Story Festival, we had a launch event in July, um, to set the tone, as we say, and that was uh, a wonderful event with uh, author Marcus Suzak, who people would definitely know as the man who wrote the book Thief. And I can also add, having read it, who's written the masterpiece Bridge of Clay out in October, um, an incredibly humble, humble man. It was a sellout event. He stayed till 10.30 at night signing books. It was just truly wonderful. And we hope to make sure that uh, Storyfest next June is as wonderful as the launch event was. So very exciting time. But as I said, there'll be, uh, you know, beautiful dinners and great venues and a wonderful vibe. And it's such a cool part of the world to come and visit anyway. Um, it'll just be an amazing weekend, I think. I think so. So what dates are they? Is that so the going festi- ahead? Yeah, the festival proper is the 21st and the 22nd of June in 2019. We are 
in negotiations and discussions with the local schools, there will be a schools program as well that will run in the week leading up to the festival. Um, so this, at this point in time, don't hold me to this, at this point in time, the Sunday is free of activities, but it, I'm not so sure that will last. Um, but we will certainly be expanding over time that the festival will always run Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, but there's so many other things to do on Sunday down here, as you well know. So people will be free to have a little bit of culture with the literary festival or the storytelling festival and then a little bit of sightseeing and lunching and all those things on the Sunday as well. Sounds idyllic, Meredith, and an amazing opportunity for artists. So listeners are out there, you know, you can block that out in your calendar and make sure you head down the south coast for that mm. amazing um, festival that's going to happen there. Um, so Meredith, if listeners wanted to connect with you or to learn more about your books, where can they find you? The, the two easiest places are my website, which is the usual www, and it's meredithjaffe.com. Or my Facebook page, which is just Meredith Jaffe. Um, and it's got the same photo on both, so you'll know it's me. <laughs> <laughs> I thoroughly recommend Meredith's novels, both of which can be purchased at good bookstores or downloaded from various e-retailers. Meredith, it has been my absolute pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for having me, Claudine. It's been really lovely spending some time with you. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.